We're going to be in Galatians today. I know that for those of you that have been with us, that's a big surprise. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles there if you want. Galatians 5 is where we'll pick up. We'll pick up kind of where we left off last week. As I've taught through this letter to the Galatians, I have dealt with it from a very individualized perspective. Now, I've talked to the whole church. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. I've talked to the whole church, but I've talked to you about how you are no longer under the law, but you are free in Christ. I've talked to you about how you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And I've talked about how you are to live in freedom in Christ. And I have talked to you as individuals about that in a whole group. But today the tone of that changes. And the reason for that is ultimately because Paul, his tone changes. And so it's not just my, it's not just my rhetoric or it's not just my idea or my philosophy. What we learn today, what we will see today is that we are not just free individuals under Christ. We are a free people that together we are brought together in Christ. That freedom in Christ is not about one person. It is about God's people. And that's what we're going to see him spell out today as we pick up where we left off and, and think again about his command, if you are alive in the Spirit, then walk by the Spirit. Now last week as we dealt with that, we, we had to look at the opposing views of the Spirit and the flesh. And as we looked at those views, we talked about what the spirit or what the flesh desires, and then we talked about what the spirit desires. And the flesh desires things like that. The flesh desires us to to be our own god. It's it's about our control that we kind of rule our own world. That we kind of get to say what's right and wrong for ourselves. That we get to determine what's true and what's not. And and that we are in control. So our our flesh, our old nature, desires to be its own god. Our flesh desires us to be worshipped as God so that as we live among friends and people that we know, we want to be adored and approved and exalted and we want people to think highly of us. And our flesh, our old sin nature desires that. Our old sin nature, our flesh desires us to rule as God. See, we don't want just people to... And I'm not saying this applies to every person. The each statement applies to every person. But I think that each person in here will be able to identify with one of these statements. Some people want control. Some people want approval. Some people want power. They don't want just to be approved of and honored among their friends. They want to be the ones telling their friends how to live their life and to do what they say. You know, they want to be the one in charge. And so there's this desire in our flesh to be the person who then is is in that position of power. And our flesh desires to live as God. We want all of the blessings of God without the constraints of God. We want, we want to have all the comforts of what it is to be a God. We want all of our own stuff. We want all of our own security. We want all of the things of life that make us feel good. You know, all of the things that we would say are comfortable life. We want those because in our view, we deserve them. It's an idea of comfort. And so that's what our flesh desires. And, and those desires then lead us to act certain ways. And that's what we saw broken out last week was we looked at the work of the flesh. Those, those desires, those internal desires inside of us lead us to act in ways that are not very flattering. I mean, if you read the list of the 15 things that he wrote, it doesn't make us look very good. I mean, uh, sexual immorality. I mean, come on, we don't talk about that in public. We're not going to be, we're not, we're not going to be proclaiming I'm, I'm sexually immoral. We're not going to do that because we know it's not flattering. Drunkenness, you know, it's not really flattering. Fits of anger, oh, you know, it, that's only, that's only okay in certain situations. But the reality is, all of those desires, all of those internal workings inside of us lead to these external workings. And they lead to these works that make their self-evident in our life. And that's really what we saw last week. And we also saw the, the, the opposing side of that. We saw the desires of the Spirit. The Spirit desires God to be recognized as God. Really, being that He said, let there be light, and the light appeared. And He said, you know, the, the earth is going to look like this, and 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 it's going to have water, and there's going to be animals. And being that He's the one that bent over and put breath in man, Really, kind of, he's the one that deserves that, right? I mean, honestly, he's the one that deserves to be called God. After all, 
He's the one that is God. Well, the Spirit desires Him to be recognized as God. He desires for all people of the world. His, the Spirit's desire is not for itself even, but for God the Father, Jesus the Son, to be recognized. In fact, the Spirit desires that Jesus and the Father would be worshipped above all other things. The Spirit's desires are for the Godhead to just be exalted over all to be realized in its sovereign rule by the people of the world. The Spirit desires for, for not, just, not just God to be recognized and not just God to be worshipped, but the Spirit desires for people who have been created by God to recognize that. The Spirit desires that the people of the world would see God that way. You see, the Spirit desires that, that it, it desires for us to live under the blessings of God. It, it's not just about the Spirit. It's not just about God being exalted and worshipped as if God is some narcissistic being that floats above the earth and says, you must recognize me. It's not simply all about God, simply because God is, is, is so wrapped up in Himself that He doesn't care for anyone else. He's, he's not the Greek gods. But he's a good and benevolent God that as He's worshipped, He recognizes that it, res, it, 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 um, it results in our best interest. And we were created to be in this place. And that's why the Spirit desires it for us. The Spirit desires us to worship. The Spirit desires us to see God as God, not because God wants our recognition or needs our recognition, but because the Spirit knows that that's what we were created for. You see, our greatest fulfillment in life and our greatest potential in life is to find ourselves in the right position before the One who created us. Not ruling over Him and making Him to be a God of our own making, but below Him under His authority, living under His rule in submission and obedience. That's what we really saw. We really saw that last week was the call to be influenced by these desires. And as we're influenced by these desires and the Spirit works in us, we saw Paul break out nine ways that that fruit becomes evident inside of us. He talks about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And here's the amazing thing about those fruits. Those, those fruits are internal. They're attitudes. They're, they're motivational. They're, they're, they're thoughts. They're, they're ways of thinking. They're ways of being. But they're not actually actions. We don't even have to compare the works that result from the fruits of the Spirit to the works of the flesh without without automatically seeing a huge difference between the two. Just the attitude alone that the Spirit works in us results in massive change. I mean, you consider love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness. The first eight. They really have nothing to do with us, we get to experience them and we get to enjoy the blessing of them, but you know what? They all, every one of them, require our eyes to move away from ourselves. You can't love someone selfishly. You cannot truly love someone selfishly. If you love with an attitude of receiving something back or, or gaining something from it, you have not loved someone in the same love that the Spirit of God has loved you. It's totally changed. You can't be faithful if you're thinking that in some way you're doing this or that you're believing in yourself, faith leads us to think of someone else and believe in some other power. Every one of these, save one, directs our attention away from ourselves and makes us look outside. And even that last one, self-control, causes us to look at ourselves, causes us to think of ourselves, but even that one, is simply about living under the influence and by the rule, under the authority of our God. It's not even really about us. It only really enables us to live and exercise the fruit that we've been given. So even that one, ultimately, is not even really about us. So we see already, not only do these opposing desires lead to opposing ideas with inside us, but, it, but, but, but it's going to result in opposing action. And we stopped last week. We stopped with the verse that says, when Paul writes, if you're alive by the Spirit, then walk by the Spirit. And we didn't get to the part 
where he began to break out what the works of the Spirit look like. You see, that's really what Galatians 6, the, the, the last verse of Galatians 5 and Galatians 6 really is all about. You want to know what the Christian life lived in the fruit of the Spirit looks like? That's what he shows us. He doesn't leave us wondering or questioning. He shows us and he gives us instruction. And so that's really where we pick it up today. As we think about now these fruits of the Spirit, as we think about the desires of the Spirit and what that leads us to, you see, these are key. These are absolutely foundational. And so chapter 6 is going to be true because chapter 5 is true. Because the other side of living in the Spirit is I can, I can teach this lesson today and I can give you a list of rules to follow. And for a while, you're going to be really good at loving one another or at least looking like you're loving one another. And I can give you a list of rules that's going to, for, at least for a while, encourage you to be good to one another and help one another while you're in trouble. But that's not what I want you to do. What I want you to do is recognize that this work is God. This work is done by God in you. And that as you live under His influence, this is the way that you just begin to direct those fruits that He's welling up inside of you. As you begin to sense a love and devotion to the people of God, I want you to act in this way. And I want you to exercise the fruit in this way. As you begin to, as you begin to recognize the, the sin in your own life and, and, the, and the struggles for control and power and approval, I want you to, to leave that alone and I want you to live in this joy and peace that God has given so that you're not concerned as much about your own problems. Not that you don't care about your own problems. Obviously you do. But that that's not so overwhelming that you can't see other people's problems. And that you can't stand beside other believers who are experiencing other things that are difficult to deal with. I want this to be the result of the Spirit moving you to this place, not you gaining a, a list of rules from, from me and you trying to live in legalistic ways around them. I want, you to, I want you to live in the desires of the Spirit. And I want you to see this stuff happen in your life, not because you are measuring up to God but because simply His fruit and His love and His grace and His mercy is so real in you that you can't hold on to it all. And that it is overflowing out of you to the people around you. So we're going to pick it up with that in mind, with that attitude in place. We're going to pick it up in Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. As we begin to see how these fruits of the Spirit aren't even really about us, but maybe about the people of God but more about the people of God. He says in verse 26, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Now we're going to stop right there. We're actually going to go basically verse by verse all the way through verse 6. We're going to stop and we're going to take that apart because I want you to understand what this is about. Paul has already kind of given us a clue a few verses before. For those of you that have been with us, you've already heard Paul talk about loving one another, that, that the law is fulfilled in this one command, that you love one another as you've been loved. And, and, and you've already heard Paul begin to talk about the benefits of this freedom in Christ, not just to you, but for the people of God, for the church at large. And it's almost like when he came to the, came to this teaching, he's like, I've got to stop. I've got to kind of give this idea. I've got to give this teaching on, on living out of the Spirit. This is not some legalistic thing that we follow. This is, this is a work of God in us. That's why I, I gave the, the warning or the, the, the clarification that I did. This is about God's work. He stops and now it's like he comes back to this idea that what God's doing isn't just about you. See, I really believe this is a huge problem we face in our church and in American cultures. We are so individualized in our culture that when the gospel comes to us, and as we sell Jesus Christ and bundle him up as a, as a product to be delivered, we tell people that this is just for you. Absolutely, I want you to recognize that Jesus died for you, but not you alone. See, you're, you're not a part of a church so that you can come and be serviced and walk away. You don't live in a bubble that's not connected to anyone else. But immediately, as Paul says, walk by the Spirit, he turns and gives commands and instruction on how to do that. 
And immediately he gives a negative command. He says, this is something not to do. Do not become conceited. What do you think that means? What's conceited? I mean, it's don't think about yourself too much. How, how many of us are so guilty of that? That our, in li- our entire life, everything that, everything that frustrates us and it makes us mad, is, it's simply because somebody's done something to me. How many of you have been cut off in traffic? I know it happens. I mean, it's happened to me. I've cut a few people off. We get so angry as if the person in the car in front of us thought, you know, I, I think that person needs to be cut off today. I am going to cut them off so I can just make them mad. Come on. Do you really believe that people think that badly of you? Maybe a few. Maybe a few. But probably not. The person you're getting so angry at that cut you off, that treated you so badly, probably doesn't even realize they've done it to you. Something I've experienced recently is just the way that I've been treated by some people that that are close to me and important to me. But I was shocked as their reaction to me was revealed. I was shocked to see how low their opinion was of me. That the, the statements as they came out were, were, were stating as if I had no concern for them at all or was only thinking of myself or only cared about my perspective or that I didn't even want to consider them. I thought, I can't believe, I cannot believe your opinion of me is so low. Now see, that's what happens when, we, when, when our life is simply about us. That's what happens. And then you have this fit of anger. I mean, really, uh, that wait, that's not good. What was that? that? That was a work of the flesh. Man, nailed myself. You see, what I'm saying is, is the reality is, is that when we begin to consider ourselves too much, we are conceited. And the idea that's behind that is that we deserve the glory. Your flesh is desiring to be seen and worshipped as God. They didn't have enough consideration for me. And the reaction is just simply a reaction based on this idea that you didn't get what your flesh desired. And so you lash out and you get angry. He says, don't be conceited. Don't, 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 don't puff yourself up and don't sell yourself short. He puts two qualifiers on the end of that, you see. And, and I want to take a test. I want you to just tell, I want to help you see this. I want, I want you to get it. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you two questions and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to be as absolutely honest with yourself as possible. I'm not going to ask you to answer. I wouldn't want to embarrass you that way. I wouldn't want to put you on the spot. I'm just going to ask you to be as honest with yourself as absolutely possible. Of the Christian people you know, who are you better than? Come on, think of the name. You know there's a name. You can think my name if you want to. It's okay. Of the Christian people you know, number two, of the Christian people you know, who do you wish you'd be more like? Or who do you wish you had their fruit? Their success? the things that they have. I, I think the sad truth is, and I'm not going to say every person because I don't know what's going on in the heart of every person in the room. I think the sad truth is that we will be really gut, just, just gut-wrenching, honest. I, I think that there's probably people we can think of. The people that we've looked at in their life and thought, God, I am glad that I don't do those kind of things anymore. I'm glad that those kind of sins aren't in my life anymore. God, you, you did a good job with me. You, you, you really you picked me right. I don't know if you got it right with them, though. I, and I know. I, I, I know. I, I even experienced this. I, I'll tell you, this is a huge thing, especially, I think, for ministers. I don't know that it's just ministers. But, but, but people who, who serve, I mean, 
I can think of all kind of guys that I'd love to see a ministry in our city like their city. And I'd love to see their fruit in our in our in our church. I mean, I, there's all kind of people I can guarantee you that if you'll stop and think and be real honest about, you know, honest with yourself about this, I, I think you'll you'll look at people. God, I, I wish I was more like them. And, and the dangerous part of this is, is that you're not just wishing that you could be more like them. You're wishing that you had what they had rather than what they had, rather than them having. And you know what? That It all results from conceit, from you thinking too highly of yourself. He says, don't do this. Here's the danger. The danger is, and it's such a subtle shift, it's a subtle shift, it's so simple, and, and, and it'll happen without even you knowing it. That, that we move from being moved by the Spirit to being moved how we feel about ourselves in comparison to others. And that's what Paul, Paul immediately says, as you walk by the Spirit, don't let this happen. Don't become conceited so that you, so that you provoke others and so that you envy others. Provoking, he refers to looking at others from a position of superiority. He's talking about challenging them as if you're better than they are. That, that's the, the word from the Greek would, would refer to that. The word from the Greek in, in envying, it says, it, it's about looking at others as if you are inferior. As if they're better than you, or that they're more worthy than you, or that there's some some way some way they've deserved more than you. I wish I had what they had. See, the beauty of the gospel is is that the level the playing field is leveled. You don't have to puff yourself up because you and I are undeserving of what God has done. We, we don't have to puff ourselves up and make ourselves bigger than we, than we think we ought to be because the grace of God answers our problems. The mercy of God fixes our issues. The love of God is unconditional. You don't have to prove anything to Him. He is going to love you no matter what. And He has already loved you in the worst of places and in the worst of situations. We don't have to puff ourselves up but we don't have to sell ourselves short either. You see, there's plenty of people out there that are more gifted. There's plenty of people out there that may, may seemingly have greater success, but the Spirit does that work based on what the Spirit of God wants to do. And He does in your life what He wants to do. Don't sell yourself short. The very fact that He lives in you and breathes fruit in you that changes your life and the way that you live it should be enough. Jesus should satisfy. We don't need anything else. I mean, really, this is a call to humility, to be a humble people. I, I think probably the best definition I've heard of this, I'm sure there's others that you may like, but, but I love this one from C.S. Lewis. He says, humility is not thinking less... Of, uh, I'm gonna, let me say how he says it. This is I'm quoting C.S. Lewis. I matter. Otherwise, I'll be quoting me, and that won't it won't work. Humility is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. You get the idea. You get the point. This life we live is not about us. So, as we walk by the Spirit, as we live under His influence, don't make that subtle shift into Phariseeism. Don't make that subtle shift. I mean, it, it is almost imperceptible to move into the place where all of a sudden it's about me, what I can do, what I need. Because as you take your eyes off the Spirit and you begin to look to yourself, the only thing that's going to result is the work of the flesh. And that's not very flattering. And certainly won't glorify God in the way we've been called to glorify God. It'll glorify God because God will be glorified. But you certainly won't be receiving the blessing and the benefit of it. He keeps going. He keeps going. He talks about this, this negative command. Do not be conceited. Do, 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 not, you know, do not act in um, provoking one another or anything one another. He keeps going. We go into chapter 6 and he begins to give positive commands. Okay, I've told you what not to do. Now I'm going to tell you what to do. In verse 1 he says, Brothers, 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you are you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, I don't know how else to say this, but just as plainly as possible, what Paul is telling us is that we are actually supposed to practice church discipline. Churches are supposed to get involved in one another's life and supposed to stand in a place in one another's life where people within the church can actually look at one another and say, you're sinning, quit doing it. I know. Doesn't fit in our culture. Oh, it's certainly not mainstream church. But we're supposed to do this. We're supposed to do this. I think it was Mark Driscoll that said, I don't know where he said it, I, don't, I, I can't even really remember that it's him, but I believe it was him, and he said that we are actually supposed to act or react negatively to sin in people's lives. Just because we're free in Christ, I mean, we've talked about that a lot, just because we're free in Christ doesn't mean that we look at a person and say, well, they're living in their freedom, I'll just let them be. If they're in sin, they're in sin, and they should be called on it. That's what he's saying. And we should be willing we should be bold enough. We should be courageous enough. We should be living in the Spirit enough that we can see it and we can call people on it and we can challenge people in it. Now, specifically, he says, if anyone is caught in a transgression, if anyone is caught in sin, and the word for caught, I mean, it really, it's a pretty interesting word because it's, a, it's, it's almost like this person has been trapped Tripped up, you know, it's something external has happened and caught this person. It's not about, it's not about this person walking knowingly into a situation. Well, you know, I'm, I, I used to struggle with sexual immorality, but I'm just going to go into the strip club and do some, do some, uh, evangelism. Come on, that doesn't work. That person's got another problem. He doesn't have any sense. This is about a person who is tripped up, who's, who's striving to live in the way God's called them to live. And they're trapped and they're tripped up. And there's three things that we can experience. The, the world trips us up. We live in a culture that it, it's, it's, it's seen as more successful to have more stuff and to have the big house and to have the nice car and to have the, have the great stuff in your house and have, uh, have the property and have the 401ks and the retirement accounts and the stocks and the bonds and all the stuff and have it all accumulated just so we can feel comfortable and easy about our life. It's, it's normal. But that's also success. And our culture trips us up into this idea that we need those things too. I'm not telling you don't save. The Bible teaches us to save. I'm not telling you to have, not to have nice stuff. I think we see plenty of places in Scripture where we're okay to have nice stuff. I'm saying that they don't provide us anything. In fact, the wealth of this world, the provisions, the things that we can gain in this world are, are temporary. They're here today and gone tomorrow. If you've ever lost a job, you kind of recognize that. You know what that's about. That job doesn't provide any security. The money that we have, our, finance, our, our economy is in such a place that who knows, tomorrow the dollar may be worth 10 cents. It may be worthless. That provides nothing. But the world trips us up. It catches us in this idea that if I have this stuff, I'll be more comfortable. I'll be okay. That's a lie. The flesh, the remnants of that sin nature... It trips us up. The flesh leads us to, to think and do things that we wouldn't want to do. We've already talked about it over and over. About the desires of the flesh. And how it finds its, its way into our life and, and the results. You know, the thing about those, those statements, the, the work of the flesh, as Paul wrote to the Galatians, they were desiring something they thought was good. And the results of that was going to be works of the flesh. We've got to be careful. But there's a third thing, and that's the enemy. And I think we don't pay enough attention to this. I've, I've been forced to pay, pay attention to this in, in recent months. I've seen, I've seen people in our church as I've talked to you and counseled some of you. I've, I've uh, dealt with it in my own life. I've, I've sensed a real spiritual attack, an oppression of our people. And, and on one side, that concerns me because I don't want you guys dealing with that. Oh, it's driven me to pray for you. And I, I'm glad that, I'm glad that, that I've, I've recognized it. I'm glad that I'm, I'm now praying in this way. But I, I think all too often we ignore this. 
We live in the midst of a real spiritual war, and you know what? Your enemy desires nothing more than to see you trip and fall. Because he doesn't want God glorified. It's not, that's not even about you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't want your devotion as much as he wants God not to have it. See, it's really about him and God. It's really about him. Those three things, they trip us up and they're real. And if we're Christians who are conceited and looking around at people as if, oh man, I am holy and I don't do the things that these people do, then we are denying that we can be tripped up by these same three things. And we can be caught in sin just as easily as someone else can. Paul says we must deal with people like this. And we can't step away from them. And it's not just anybody in the church. He he names a specific people. He says those who are spiritual. What we don't need is the porn addict going to the man who is having that has a mistress behind his wife's back saying, You need to quit that, you're in sin. Now I guess it's okay if the porn addict is okay with the, the adulterer saying, Well, you're a porn addict, quit looking at porn. I mean, I guess that's all right. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about people who are already caught in their own problems and need someone else to come in their life. He's he's talking specifically about people who have a level of spiritual maturity, who are walking by the Spirit, who the fruit of the Spirit has begun to show its outward effects. It doesn't mean that if you're struggling with some sin and you recognize sin in somebody else's life that you shouldn't care enough to be be, be by their side. But you should be seeking correction and standing with them as they seek correction. Not coming to them as someone who says you're in sin, you need to quit. And the reality is is that this is the life that I think as as people in the church, we are called to strive for. We are called to strive for the spiritual walk. We've been commanded to it. And our church is hurt when people don't. Because when people don't, there's not people who can step up and say with authority, we are called to holiness, to a life of morality, to a life that honors God. We need those people to step up that can act and dispense the grace that they have received. And then he says that the reason for doing this, he says why we're supposed to do this is to restore that person Church discipline is never about condemnation. It's never about trying to make a person feel guilty. It's never about trying to crush them or break them or punish them. Oh, you screwed up. I'm going to get you. You know, parents who don't love their children will punish their children. And when they act in anger or react in anger to something their children do, they will seek to just punish their children and break the children's spirit. Parents who love their children are going to seek to discipline them well. It means that at times they're going to use strong words. They're going to use tough actions. But they are going to do it for the, for the interest of the child. Not simply because, I can't believe you did that. I'm going to punish you. That's not what he says. Discipline, church discipline, is to be about restoration. The word refers to a bone being set. A broken bone being set. But things that are out of place being put back in place. The reason the church is to discipline is to take and move somebody who is tripping up and caught in some trap and take them out of the trap and put them back in the community of the church that they might enjoy the blessings of the community of the church. That's what this is about. And if it's ever about anything else, then that's church punishment and that's unbiblical. And that's another reason that we should be doing this or at least those that are spiritual should be doing this. Because they're not reacting in anger or out of the flesh, but they're reacting out of the fruit of the Spirit that's at work in them. It's important. He says then how we're supposed to do it. He says with a spirit of gentleness. Now there are times for strong words, and so I don't want us to misunderstand this. There are certain situations that strong words are necessary. Paul proved that in this letter to the Galatians. He wrote some pretty tough words to these people. He, he said some pretty tough things about the Judaizers. I mean, you remember the verse where he says, I just wish they'd emasculate themselves, cut it all the way off. 
That doesn't sound real gentle. I mean, it's kind of scary to me. It's, it's, oof, gives me nightmares. The reality is, though, that there is time for strong words and there are situations that demand it. Jesus was very direct and he was very stern with Pharisees. But how did he treat the woman who had been caught in adultery? Two totally different things. Two totally different ideas. Two totally different ways of dealing with people. See, we have to recognize that. We have to deal with people as the situation demands. But as we exercise church discipline, it should be done in gentleness. As we seek to restore a member of the body, it's not about crushing them. It's about restoring them. See, here's the thing. Church discipline doesn't start with me. It really does start with each and every one of you. It starts with self-discipline. You are to discipline yourself. That's what the Spirit gave you. The fruit He's working in you is self-control. That's your job. That starts with you. Beyond that, people who are around you, who are spiritual, here's the deal. If someone comes to you and confronts you with a sin, don't be offended. They love you. They love you enough to put that what could be a very difficult situation and a relationship at risk to tell you the truth because they want to see you restored. I hope that's their intentions. It should be their intentions. That's the biblical model. That's what we've been called to. He says then, for the person doing this, keep watch on yourself because as we deal with people's sin, we may find ourselves tempted. I've struggled with with all kind of things in my past. I've been very honest about that, and I've been very frank. It, it, it would be very easy for me to get into get get into a, di- a disciplined situation with someone and be walking with someone through through some sort of sexual immorality or pornography or, or something along that lines. It would be very easy for me. I'm on a slippery slope because I'm so close to it. It'd be very easy for me to slip into it. I have to keep watch. You have to keep watch. It's a warning. Be careful. But it is not reason not to act. Jesus Christ put Himself in harm's way for you and I. We need to be warned and we need to be understanding of it, but we do not have right not to act. Keep watch that you may not fall into sin as well. On the other side of that, when they're not responding the way you want, when they're not doing the things you think they should do, when they're not acting exactly as you think you should, it'd be very easy to become judgmental and begin condemning them. That's no place for you to be if you're striving to act in church discipline. He keeps going. That's one thing you do. Practice church discipline. Another thing you do. He says in verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Provide assistance for one another. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Help one another out. Help, help a brother, you know? I mean, we have trouble. Life is tough. It sucks some days. It's difficult. And God never meant for us to walk it alone. It's proven in the Garden of Eden that God didn't mean for man to be alone. Of all of creation, of all the things that He did, of all the things that He said were good, the one thing was that man was alone. And in that first relationship, it is immediately proven what God intended for these relationships. But then he says he he didn't intend for the marriage to be alone. He says, now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's not having a couple of kids. That's a bunch of people. Fill the earth. We were never meant to be by ourselves. We're never meant to walk this walk by ourselves. The way that the Spirit gifts us, the way that the Spirit works in us, some of you are strong in areas that I'm weak. I'm strong in areas some of you are weak. And then others are strong in areas that we're both weak. And the beauty is, is that together, it all fits together. And it's like this, it's like these building blocks and the structure becomes strong because He's interlacing them and He's working them together so that they build upon one another. See, that's the beauty of it. He calls us to help one another. There's a couple of ways you could see this. First, it's, the first way it's been interpreted is to refer back to the sin that he talked about already. When somebody's caught in sin, help them out. 
Bear one another's burdens. This is a burden. Sin is a burden. Let's be, come on. Is it not? It sucks some days to deal with the sin we have. I don't like my sin. I'm not happy about it. Man, some days it feels pretty good to get angry and just blow up at somebody just for the sake of blowing up because they made me mad. But then I think about a Bible verse and, ah, golly, it stinks. I can't believe. I'm thankful for the grace of God. Bear one another's burdens. You're not perfect. Don't expect them to be perfect. Come alongside one, aside one another. Put a shoulder on it and walk together. That's, that's what it's talking about. Deal with it. Help one another in it. It's also the trials and problems of life. That's the other way that people interpret it. I think it's both. I don't think that Paul's, I think Paul has both in mind. The sin we struggle with and the trials and, and burdens and the struggles of life. Life is tough. It's difficult. Every day we get bad news. Well, maybe not every day, but some of us every day get bad news. We get told things we don't want to hear that are difficult to deal with. We're called to stand together. We're called to be about doing life together. This verse proves we are going to face difficulties that we need help with. Just, to, just know it. Don't put on a face when you come into the church and act like everything's okay. Now, that doesn't give you permission to come in and list out all your dirty laundry and all your problems. Not everybody needs to be that person. Some of us, we spend too much time talking about, oh, man, I just you're not going to believe this. I, you're not going to believe what they did to me now. People mistreat me so bad. There's, there's a problem there. But we should be willing to bear one another's burdens. We are going to face difficulties that we need help with. It's a reality. Quit putting on a show. Let's be real. We will need one another's help. Some of us, this is a difficult thing. I don't like to ask for help. I'm a pretty self-sufficient guy. I'm learning. I'm 40 almost. I'll be 40 in a couple of days. Most of you know that already. Thanks for that, by the way. I'm learning as far from the truth as possible. We were created to be dependent upon one another. Not codependent, but dependent. We need one another. Codependency moves people into a place of, of Godhead in your life and Godship in your life, and that's wrong. That's exalting the wrong thing. But we are dependent creatures. We need help. This is going to require us to be involved in one another's life. You know what? It's one of the big big focuses of our church. It's why it's a big focus of our church. It's because if you're going to help with one another's needs, you've actually got to spend time with one another so you can figure out what those needs are. We can't know. If, if we show up on Sunday and we go home from here and don't have any contact with anybody else in the church all week long, how in the world can the church stand by you and help you? How can anybody in the church know? You can't. That's why we're so, uh, why we're always talking about community. And even as we finish this, this, I've changed, I've changed the, the next sermon series because we've got a brand new church in this last year. We've seen a, a brand new church form. And we're going to, we're going to do some core group development. And we're going to talk about these things in detail. We're going to do some studies in detail. And I'm going to encourage every person that's a covenant member of our church to be in community and find those relationships. And this is why. Because if we don't know, we can't help you. If we don't have people that are in constant contact with your life or that, or, or that know that you exist and that you're alive and that you're a part of, part of the world, that we, we won't know. You could die in your apartment and we wouldn't be able to do anything about it. We don't want that. I don't want that. I want our people to be involved with one another, to do life together, life on life, shoulder to shoulder. Loving one another. Doing the things that the Spirit enables us to do for one another. It's going to require us to let each other know our needs and accept the help. And it's going to require us to decide our own lives aren't quite as important as the needs of somebody else. 
but we're going to have to do some heavy lifting that benefits someone else. We might have to use a vacation day instead of spending it in Florida, spending it at a church member's house, taking care of some problems that they have. It, it, it may mean that, that we have to have to do some babysitting. It may mean that we have to do some some uh, some way we we've, we've got to involve ourselves in someone, someone someone's life so that we can take care of their kids so that they can work on their marriage. We may have to stand by as someone loses somebody extremely important and just be a shoulder that they can lean on. I, I don't know. There's any number of ways that this works itself out. But it means that we count them more significant than we ourselves, that we consider their needs and not just our own. We can't be conceited. This is the thing we're called to do. Paul tells us. And he says that by doing this, we fulfill the law of Christ. I mean, this proves, if, if, if you have some idea that freedom in Christ is about living your life the way you want to live it, this proves it. We are not a lawless people. We have commands to follow. This is the law of Christ. We don't live to the Ten Commandments and the, and the Mosaic Law and the Ceremonial Law and, and all of that as, as if in some way we've got to measure up to it. But as the Spirit comes in, there is a real command for us to follow. And it starts, Jesus. in fact, Paul already told us, the law is fulfilled in this one command that you love one another. It starts right there. And as we love one another, we quit murdering. As we love one another, we quit hating. As we love one another, we quit disparaging. As we love one another, we quit dividing. As we love one another, we quit ignoring. You see, the idea is, is that as we follow this command in the power of the Spirit, we are in obedience to the law of Christ. We are not lawless. We are not our own rulers. We are under His law. And we are to follow His commands. And this is how it's fulfilled. As the Spirit works in us and our eyes are removed from ourselves, it begins to make its way into the people around us. So fulfill the law of Christ. Then He goes on. We're, we're getting close. I know, I, know, I know you guys are tired of hearing me, but this is important stuff. He goes on. He says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Just real quickly, when we get too big ahead, when we get puffed up, we deceive ourselves. Did you sing that song earlier about uh, where you go, I'll go, where you stay, I'll stay, if you move, I'll move? Did you sing that song? And, and did you mean the words? I mean, were you saying them with your mouth and not meaning them in your heart? Were you saying them and not even thinking about the implications? That's a huge commitment. Those are, that's a huge level of commitment. Don't deceive yourself. Be real about who you are and understand it and rest in the grace of God and live under the influence of the Spirit. When we think we're something that we're not, we deceive ourselves. <clears throat> He says, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. Examine yourself. Remember, we've been called to humility. We've been called not to provoke or look at ourselves superior to others and, and not to be envying and looking at ourselves as inferior to others. We've been called to live in light of the law of Christ. There is no other standard for you and me. The law of Christ proves this. We didn't make the cut. We didn't make it. But Jesus brought us in anyway. And now He's called us to live in that grace and by His power. That's the examination. That's, that's the examination. That's the standard. Examine yourself. Be real with yourself. It's like stepping in front of the mirror and, and recognizing all your own flaws. Be real about it. And then recognizing the things that God set right. You see, the reason to boast in yourself, the reason that he's, he's talking about, then, then you'll have reason to boast in yourself. It's, not, it, it's because as you look around, you can certainly find people you can boast in yourself about when, the, when other people are your standard because there's plenty of failures out there. 
But when it's the law of Christ and it's just you looking into the law of Christ and seeing yourself, what you can see is the beauty of God's work at work in you. And that joy will be real and that joy will bring great change. Because no longer are you recognizing that I did it all on my own. God did it in me. God, the creator of all the universe, has done this in me. Examine yourselves. Be real about who you are because the reality is that we are all going to, to bear our own load. And there's been people who have, who have dealt with this and, and talked about the burdens before and the load here and them being, being, uh, possibly a, a, uh, 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 a flaw in his thinking, or not a flaw, but a contradiction in terms. And, and the reality is, is that he's really kind of talking about two different things. He's not saying that you've been called to carry your own load in terms of everyday circumstances in your life. You see, the tense of the verb tells us that we will be required to carry our own load. It looks, it causes us to look forward. It causes us to look outside of the time we live in now and look forward. And I like the way John Stott deals with it. John Stott says, so we are to bear one another's burdens. Thinking about verse 1 or verse 2, which are too heavy for a man to bear alone. But there is one burden which we cannot share. Indeed, do not need to because it is a pack light enough for every man to carry himself. And that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack and I cannot carry yours. As we examine ourselves before the law of Christ, we find ourselves responsible for failure. So living under the law of Christ and living in the way that God leads us and living under the influence of the Spirit. But grace, even grace is big enough for that. And this small load, this light pack that we can all carry will be on our back the day we stand before Jesus. And so He won't condemn us. He won't cast us out of His presence. But we are going to answer for how we've lived in His salvation. And I think when you look at the context and the reaping and sowing that we're going to talk about next week, you'll see that that's really what this verse refers to. We are a responsible people. We cannot save ourselves, but we are responsible to live in this way now. He says, examine yourself, watch yourself. Remember the whole idea about self-control, self-discipline. It starts here. We've got to take time to look into the mirror of the law of Christ, into the mirror of God's commands and see how our life measures up. And the truth is, I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's going to be like I was talking with, with my family outside. It's going to be like a woman in front of the mirror before bikini season, a bathing suit season. You should be able to see some flaws because none of us are really happy with who we are, right? But the truth is, is that because of the grace of God, those flaws will be insignificant and it will be a load that we're required to carry. And then he goes on in verse 6. We'll close it out. He says in verse 6, Let the one who has taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this is one that's near and dear to my heart. I have teaching. And I want to be shared with. But I don't want to be shared with selfishly. I, for the longest time, have pushed back and said, I'm not going to accept pay from the church. It's been my responsibility. It's been, been my reasoning why I've not done that. And I've, I've been asked by many people about buildings and what we're going to do next and how we're going to do things. And I told you guys a couple months ago in announcements that we've got to make some changes to the way we spend money and the way that we budget the money. And the reason is, is because what I've begun to recognize is, as I'm getting older, something could happen to me at any time. I mean, really, this 40-year-old birthday is it's just, I'm, it's been hard to deal with. I, I mean, I could be, I'd die tomorrow. You know, I don't, I don't feel nearly as invincible as I used to. The reality is, I've, it's what it's done is it's made me think not about the church in my time. It's made me think about the church continuing after I'm gone. And where we're at a place right now is that if we went and got a building and spent our money on a building, I could die and you could have a church with a building, but a church without a pastor is going to quickly begin to run in circles. So we have to think about and we have to prepare this church to go the long haul. We've got to play the long game. And you need to begin to take care of your pastor now. It's biblical. It's what, we're, what you're called to do. Calvin says it this way. I like the way he says it. 
He says he does not propose that no limit, or I'm sorry, that's not the first place. He says how disgraceful it is to defraud of their temporal support those whom our souls are, whom, by whom our souls are fed, to refuse an earthly recompense to those whom we receive heavenly benefits. But it is, and has always been, the disposition of the world to freely and to freely bestow on the ministers of Satan every luxury and hardly to supply godly pastors with necessary food. I think what he's saying, and we can put it in terms of today, look at the difference between the way Lady Gaga lives and a pastor. Now, I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that Lady Gaga is the servant of Satan. I don't know. I just don't know. I'm not, don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying is that we love so much the people who who stand in places of prominence in our pop culture and in our world that we'll go out and we'll buy their albums and we'll support them by seeing their movies and we'll spend all this money to have their, their video games and we'll, and we'll buy the game systems that go with it and we'll, we'll devour this stuff. And yet, the danger is, and it's been proven through the ages, this is not me just saying it, Calvin saw it in his time, that people think that preachers should do their thing and not enjoy a comfortable life. He goes on to say, and I want to make sure that this is said so that you don't get the wrong idea, he does not propose, this is Calvin, he does not propose, talking about Paul, that no limit should be set to their worldly enjoyments or that they should revel in superfluous abundance, but merely that none of the necessary supports of life should be withheld. Ministers ought to be satisfied with moderate fare. And the danger which attends pomp and luxury ought to be prevented to supply their real necessities. Let believers cheerfully devote any part of their property that they may be required for the services of devout and holy teachers. The reality is this. Every work of the Spirit turns your eyes to someone else. God has not blessed you to bless yourself. God has blessed you that you might be a blessing to others. Does that mean you won't enjoy His blessing? Absolutely not. You will enjoy. To the fullest extent, I encourage you to enjoy His blessings. But don't be so greedy that you don't let it bless others. And at least as Paul puts it, make sure that you take care of the people that teach you. And so if you get up and you leave this place and you go to another church, you give to that church cheerfully, making sure that that pastor is taken care of. Give to that church in such a way that you see God's mission enabled because that pastor is able to study the Word diligently and to preach it boldly so that He can bring the truth to you. If you stay in this church, give generously, not because... Not because I want some great big salary, but because I know that there's going to be fruit in your life as you give that gift. I want the fruit for you. And I learned that. I, I learned that attitude. I've struggled with this, and, and I don't, I, I'm not comfortable all the time talking about money. It's not my favorite thing to talk about. It's such a sensitive issue. I, I usually get nervous, but I learned as we went through Philippians. Paul thanked the, the um, Philippians for their gift not because he needed the gift, but because he enjoyed the idea of the fruit that would go into their lives as they gave it. What a beautiful attitude. What an amazing work of the Spirit. As, as your eyes are turned to give generously to support your teacher, my eyes are turned to, to want the greatest good for you in your life and you to enjoy the fruit of that gift. It's a two-way street. The reality is, is all of this, as we have been given this instruction and called to, by, by these commands to live in the Spirit in these ways, to take the fruits of the Spirit, those new motivations and those new attitudes in our life and direct them this way to, to help one another in sin, to bear one another's burdens, to examine ourselves so that we are living well among the people of God and we're taking care of the people that lead us so that the people that lead us can take care of us. It's not, about, it's not about any one of us. Not any one of us is elevated to a place that, that, 
that, that is more important than the other. It's about us as a people, not individuals, but as a people being set free to glorify and worship our great God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenges that it brings to our life, the instruction it brings to our life. I thank you, God, that you didn't leave us wanting on how to live in the Spirit and what that life looks like. I thank you that, that you've given us some idea of how to, how to now turn these motivations and this freedom, God, into action. I pray, God, I pray that as each of these words, I, I, I pray that you will just use them in each life here. Not just to have high lofty ideas, but God, to have practical ways that they can begin to act and work in the Spirit. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And, and we thank you so much for the sacrifice that you made for us that, that made it all possible. Thank you for Jesus. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.